I'm Matt Godbold. And I'm Ben Reid. And this is Two's Compliment, a programming podcast. Hey Ben, last episode you and I were discussing how we started out with the same goal, that is to be in the games industry, and Mm -hmm. I spent a decade or so doing so, whereas you, through no fault of your own, ended up not working in games. And then sort of like 20-odd years into our careers, we've we've met up and we've been discussing kind of the things that went well, the things that didn't go so well, the things that differ. And last time we specifically were talking about testing and how... I hadn't really learned how to do testing as a first category of thing. It was like something that I learned much later in my career, whereas you've kind of made a thing about testing. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was was sort of all of the XP practices. Because like, as you said, you know, I I didn't get to fulfill my my dream of becoming a game developer, you know, falling like Icarus covered in feathers and wax from the sky (laughs) into the reality of the cold, harsh world. But I, what I did do is I got I got really into sort of like uh, extreme programming and extreme programming engineering practices because that's really what that whole thing was about. When you say extreme programming, I hear people like bandy it around. But what do you what do you mean when you say extreme programming? Does so it have extreme, the capital letters. Yeah, yeah, XP. <laughs> the, I don't know why they capitalized the, but you know maybe EP. Sounds cool. Yeah, it sounds cooler that way. But so XP was this was this process i mean some people still use it but it's like this process for building software that you know was invented or developed kind of like as part of this um various projects in sort of the late 90s and early 2000s and it was an engineering focused approach to building software as opposed to a lot of the other approaches at that time which were much more sort of i don't know business oriented i guess is the way that you describe it not programming waterfall type stuff or not even that i mean i'm not really talking about that like the the contrast that i have in my career was the the first the thing that i first started doing when i graduated from school was working for this company in houston doing data visualization and they used a process there called rup the rational unify process and oh, i tried that for rational like about as in a, rational rows yes as in rational rows the actual right? like yeah, the ibm Bush. yeah exactly and so, you know, I tried that for a year and I was like, this is gross and found XP and got way into it from there. So, yeah, so my, my career, instead of going into the games industry, I got way into agile engineering practices like mm-hmm. um, test room development, pair right. programming, continuous integration and all that stuff. And I've been doing that basically since, you know, for almost 20 years now. Which is very, very different from the grind-oriented programming that I experienced in North London, <laughs> living a mile away from where my office was, making it home after closing time from the pub, staggering into bed, getting back up again, going into work and work long yeah. hours and, and grinding and essentially applying human effort of will as opposed to actual sound design <laughs> practices to making software work, which, you know, we towards the end, in fairness, I, I paint this picture, towards the end, in fairness, we were we were starting to pick up on some some practices we did have some tests but i think like i said last time most of them were assert based and being in the games industry we were working mainly in c and c plus plus you know in some assembly and some other weird things that we we we, we use but the mainstay of that was developing for consoles 
that were not standard they weren't something you could just r- run and deploy to there was there were steps involved in actually getting it to run you know in some cases it was there's a serial cable and you had to like squirt your software down into it to make it work they had different architectures from the host machine that you were running on so you couldn't just build and run them locally and so testing was very much something that we did on a subset of important code that we bothered to get ported to run on uh, x86 or if we were working on a pc game then obviously we could do some amount of it but it was basically assert based testing mm-hmm. but even then even accounting for all those things right now fast forward 20 odd years and we're talking about server software for the for the finance industry and we have all the capabilities open to us and yet testing is still hard in c and c plus plus and so mm-hmm. i thought one thing we could talk about this time specifically is why is that the case and what can we do yeah, yeah, I think that's a fantastic idea. So you have described to me as like good design can often yield testability or perhaps the other way around, right? If you design for testability, that is a good design. So yeah. maybe there's something wrong with our design. So let's let's start from like what makes something easy to test, what makes something uh, testable, and then we can sort of, I'll try and riff on why that maybe doesn't work for me or whether it right. does So it yeah, should. I mean, I think for, for me, and I mean, this is, my own personal belief, but code isn't well designed unless it's testable. That's just a criteria of design that it's like, right. and it's a much more concrete and useful con- uh, criteria than I think a lot of people use. There's sort of, you know, there's a lot of like, you know, winning by style points that happens in some kinds of software design where it's like, oh yeah, well this is, has this certain shape to it, or I don't even know. Can I write tests that run quickly is a, a criteria that is like, right. if, it, if you can't do that, it's not well designed. And and specifically as well, you mentioned quickly as well is like another thing you've kind of grafted on there, but we, we talked yes. about last time, but that's an important part of it. No, no, that, that's a good point is that it's like the kind of tests that I'm talking about where they are very focused, they can run very quickly, they're decoupled from things like the network, the file system, other services, you know, hardware even in, in certain situations. Yeah. Like if you if you can't write those kinds of tests, your code is not well designed by my personal definition. Yeah, right? no, I, I can see an argument for it. I think, you know, we, we might politely disagree about where the line is under some circumstances yeah because of pragmatism which is yeah i I mean i was just going to say i think one of the places where that gets difficult is when you have constraints on your code that are related to hardware related to performance related to multi-threading is another dimension we talked about last time and so you know one Mm -hmm. thing that i would i would kind of love to get into with in this episode is talking about like in c plus plus specifically some of the hurdles to doing things to increase testability that I would think of as good design, but you would, you know, maybe turn your nose up at and be like, yeah, okay, I get why you're doing that. But if you do that, then it's going to cost you this, right? And do you really want to make that trade-off? Right. I think that's it. I think that you've kind of cut to it there. The Usually you only pick C++ if performance Mm -hmm. is one of your primary goals. I don't think many of us rub our hands with glee and say, I'm going to write a mainly string processing application that's not performance critical in C++. That's not the first thing we'd go for. You know, you'd pick Python, you'd pick Perl, you'd pick Ruby, any of those things. JavaScript, they work beautifully. They have uh, So they have a great user experience out of the box. C++ has a lot of hard work to even get it up to the point where you've got a build, let alone uh, an executable that does something useful. So you, if you're picking performance, then one of the things that C++ leverages if the compiler knows more about the way your software is put together and how 
your code fits together, it can do a much better job of optimizing it. So putting direct calls in your code to the, where the source code is visible to the compiler. So for example, if I have a, a class and I have methods in that class, and some of those cl class methods are actually even in the header file, and there are compiler technologies that make that less important, but like, you know, the, the implementation is there for everyone to see in your header file, then the compiler can often inline it, do a lot of great optimizations and give you some super fast code, which is wonderful. But you have tightly bound and coupled the code that calls that function to the implementation of that, the specific implementation of that function. And that means that there is nowhere to put a little break in between to say, what well, I'd like to observe the interaction between your component and the thing that you're calling. There is nowhere to put a test in there. Now, obviously, in other languages, and you can do this in C++ as well, you would use a mock often to say, well, I don't care about what you are doing. Moreover, I just care about the interactions you have with another object. So you mentioned file system. There's a great one. In C++, you probably would just use a std file system object. And that's great. It comes with the, the, the modern versions of C. And you get access to files and paths and all those good things, right? But it's a concrete object. There's no seam for me to mock it out unless I go out of my way to add one in. So even where, even though file access is going to be slow, we know that it's not a highly performant area of the code. By default, we, we can't interrupt that communication and say, well, I'm not going to give you a real file here. I'm going to give you a pretend file. Yeah, and I mean, that sort of dependency injection is what people generally refer to it as, is a common technique for testing. Right. Um, but I... I, I kind of wonder, it's like, you know, you kind of just said, it's like, well, if we're going to be talking to a, a file system anyway, performance is kind of out the window, right? Like, at least in in some respects. So, uh, mm -hmm. at, at least in that area, I would imagine, like, yeah, you might have to roll that abstraction yourself. You might want to roll that abstraction yourself, yep. depending on what you... It might be right. a useful thing for you to do just because of yeah. your... And yeah, and I mean, right. you know, I actually think that this is one of the great benefits of testing in general is that it forces you when you're when you are forced to decouple things it makes you consider what parts of the dependency you actually need and which ones are just kind of coming along for the ride and although it it seems convenient yeah. oftentimes to have the full array of possible ways to interact with an object or a system or anything else it is often quite nice to focus those interactions to be only what they have to be because a it reduces the number of possible code paths through your code right like if you're only using one right. thing yep. then you just have to make sure that one thing works you don't have to make sure that everything works but it's also sometimes makes it easier to under, a little easier to understand especially if you're coming into a new code base and you're like okay well i know how this function call works and they're using it all over the place as opposed to well there's 12 of them and i don't know what they do so giving some thought to that, I think it has value. So you, the, the kind of things you're talking about perhaps are, you know, obviously there's the, essentially the, the, the global space is mm -hmm. an object, if you want to think of it in that way, or a scope. It's a scope, you know, like calling just std file system colon colon file on mm -hmm. a thing gets you a file yeah. is in the global scope. But if I deliberately limit myself and say, well, no, this, this, this component I'm talking to only wants to load cache files and it only really cares about the contents of those cache files, why don't I just hand it something for which that is the interface? And now I've kind of documented the interactions and I've limited the interactions in a useful way. Yeah, exactly. Way. 
So this, the abstraction might actually have power above and beyond the testability that might be the initial reason I put it in place. I might put it there. And I do this all the time. You know, obviously we're... <laughs> we've we've worked together. We've we've done these yeah. some of these things together before. But this is the kind of thing that I do, and I've had discussions with other C plus plus programmers who have have come down on the side of like saying I wouldn't necessarily add an abstraction purely for testability. And I've kind of gone back and forth on that because I I, I have done. I've I've added stuff. You know, like exactly in the file system is usually the arena where this stuff crops up. Is like yeah, okay, I'm going to add something which provides a file or provides a con config loader or something like that, and then I. Somewhere there's a thing that can do files, but most of the time it's my fake one for testing. But it, it was interesting finding that there were people who wouldn't do it just yeah. to add testability. But very often when I've done it, I have discovered that it's a useful thing. And perhaps that's what you're alluding to here is, is that like you've mentioned something about abstractions before that they are what discovered. Yeah, not abstractions are discovered, not created, right? You, you need to sort of see how your system's yeah. used and then pull the abstractions out. Right. And I've worked with a, a good friend of mine before now who has also referred to bad abstraction layers as obstruction <laughs> layers, which I think we've all been there where you're like, well, I just need yeah, the thing on the yeah. other side of this wall. So there's always a danger if you're introducing these things where, you know, maybe you are decoupled from the file system in your config processing system. And then you're like, well, I just want to see if the yeah. file exists. And now I, I haven't, I'd love to reach out to the disk. And, and you now you're like, well, now I have to actually add this to the interface. But to your point... If I add it to the interface, then maybe I'm documenting more about the things that I, yeah, I actually need yeah. to do. And I mean, I think you want to make those kinds of changes easy, but make them intentional, right? Like if you're going to sort of break the abstraction a little bit and say, okay, well, I need to see if this file exists, design your code such that it's easy to add that, but then add it only when you need it. And I mean, I think one of the other great benefits that you get out of doing this is you sort of get a, a very low cost uh, design for reuse. Like in their file example, if you have an abstraction that says, okay, I can, I can read the contents of this file, I can, I can stream it in, then if you have a, an abstraction there that's saying, well, it doesn't really matter if I'm reading from a file or from a socket, uh, the code will work basically the same either way. But the second that I try to seek, then that abstraction now has been completely destroyed. And, and sometimes we make decisions yeah. about how to implement an algorithm we're almost like looking for a reason to choose one thing over another, right? Like it's, there's eight different ways I could do this. Which one do I do? If you have the whole array of possible file system, uh, you know, tools at your disposal, you might choose one arbitrarily. If you've focused it to be right. only a certain set of things, the choice is maybe, okay, well, I could arbitrarily pick one, one of these eights. Well, I'm going to choose this one because it's the one that I've already abstracted. And that naturally leads you toward designs that are more reusable because it's like, oh, well, you could also do this with a socket and you never know the difference. So I, I, one of the, we're going to go off track from C++ pretty quickly, but we, and I would like to get back to some things I'd like to talk about. But one of the things I've seen in other programming languages, um, mock sort of setups, is their actual, their dynamism, so I'm thinking Python specifically here, their dynamism allows for the kind of thing where you can monkey patch out like, the global file system routines and just say, hey, I want to test this thing. I know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, that it's going to open a file using this particular API. You essentially hack the runtime to say, no, no, if you call um, file.open, uh, do, do, do this instead, and you temporarily install that patch, then you can write your test and then you can say, yeah, okay, when I call the config system and I know it loaded the file and I was able to provide it the file and I could assert that that was the case. But mm -hmm. that's so brittle. It's so brittle because I could reasonably refactor 
I don't know if refactor is the right thing. Let's not talk about that. But I could re- could easily change without too many external um, obvious changes the implementation of my config loader to use a different API. Mm-hmm. There are hundreds, as you say, there's a dozen ways you could have loaded a file. I could mmap the thing. I could you know, open it. I could use path to open. I could use whatever. And now suddenly I've broken a perfectly reasonable test of that system because I just chose not to use the API. But if I force it through an interface that I designed ahead of time to say, well, these are the kinds of things you can do to the files mm-hmm. in this context, then necessarily I'm not mm-hmm. open to that. Now, obviously, I don't get the choice of doing that in C++, short of some absolute heroics with the preprocessor and hash defining a whole bunch of gunk to be things that they aren't, which is so dreadful, I'm not even going to go further down this logic setup. But but actually, that does lead me to the other thing I wanted to talk about, which is when I do testing in C++, I typically do think of adding a virtual layer. So this is a uh, a class with virtual methods, which has a performance, a runtime mm-hmm. performance cost. And I've long argued back and forth various places about what the costs of that really are. And certainly back in the days of the games industry, um, the cost really was the the indirect call instruction that it necessitated. Nowadays, that's less the problem. It's more like it's a barrier to the optimizer. The optimizer can't see across it, doesn't know what it's doing. But even that's coming down. But let's hold that to one side. But that means that you are definitely designing your software ahead of time with a very specific strict contract. And that's the interface definition. There's another school of thought that lets you use template parameters into a a function or a class to hand it essentially a policy object that says this is the thing when you want to use a file use this object this Mm. type of object and that's a compile time change the compiler can see which one you actually handed the implementation and it can therefore generate like again perfect fast code paths through the virtual is a runtime decision that the compiler doesn't know that you've switched out on so there is a way of having a lower overhead, runtime overhead version of, of uh, essentially dependency injection. But it's a sort of insidious one because every type you pass around your program carries with it the parameters mm-hmm. that were given to that type. And so in your like real program, you might have, um, oh, I'm using my config loader, and its type is config loader, angle brackets, real yeah. file loader. So that's like the policy that it's going to use. But when you're using it in test, it's a config loader, colon, sorry, angle brackets, fake file loader. But then that's all well and good until you want to embed that in another object. And now that other object carries with it the same dependency. Yeah, so yeah. transitively, you pick up all of these things. And it becomes harder to, to deal, deal with. It's an interesting thing that I don't think many other languages have an analog to. And I don't know where I'm quite where I'm going with it, other than I tend to not use it because I hate the compile times that, that come along with it. And there are so many tricks you can do in the code that rely on the actual concrete types because you can interrogate that. And it's a commonly done thing to say, like, well, what was my template parameter? Does it have a colon, colon, this? Does it have a... Uh, uh, what, what what is the type of its colon colon size type? Or oh, I can dispatch on that. That now it's not a, the interface is not opaque to the implementation that's using it. You can actually inspect the implementation you were handed and make decisions, which means that you can actually have a different. You know, I could actually say I can use a trick to detect if it was really a fake one that I'd been instantiated with and do yeah. something different in my implementation. That could mean that you test one thing and. In yeah. your non-test case, you, it does something different, right. and I don't like that. You know, I like the idea that 
almost essentially the library that I built that I link against the test.exe is the same library I then link against to create the thing that mm. I'm going to ship off to production as opposed to completely recompiling it with essentially a, a set of preprocessor, well, compile time processed parameters that yeah, could change yeah. the behavior. I just realized what I've just been doing is ranting <laughs> for the last two minutes about this particular topic as I feel so strongly about it. But it is a, it's a valid way of achieving this and I've seen it used to great success. And in fairness, I have used it sparingly in contexts where I feel it doesn't leak outside of a small component, which I guess brings us right back to yeah. design. And maybe that's ultimately what makes me feel so uncomfortable about this is that it's a, an abstraction that leaks throughout the entirety transitively through my design and I don't really want it to. I want to hide stuff away. Without appealing to the kind of um, virtual method or interaction-based testing, typically what I find myself doing when I am writing testable C++ code is trying to chew off the smallest possible thing and test it as a component mm -hmm. and then test it in aggregation and then test the aggregation and then test the aggregation of that. So it's a very sort of build up. And I'm not testing the specific interactions between components which because I, I, I can't see mm -hmm. into them. But I know that my grommet works and I know that my screw works and I know that my nut and bolt mm -hmm. work. And then I kind of sort of blindly trust a bit that the, putting them all together into a, a, a widget works but i do test the widget it's not like mm -hmm. I'm, I'm i'm there but i i know that i'm leaving i'm leaving something on the table there by not being able to test all of the the interactions between the two but i i, I still think it's it's not an invalid way of testing in general no i think that's a perfectly valid way of testing and certainly dependency injection is not the only way to write testable code far from it if you're working in a functional language dependency injection is not even a thing right right so and, and i mean i think the pattern that you're describing of building small components whether they're classes or whether they're functions, and then assembling mm -hmm. a system out of those, and then writing tests for the assembled pieces can work, and I have certainly done testing that way. The thing that you can run into when you do that is you sort of run into the problem of when you make changes, you wind up with a whole bunch of failing tests. So in, in an ideal world, right. and not even in an ideal world, that's a stupid phrase. People say that all the time. How about the real world? <laughs> in the real world, when you do things in a certain way, what you get is when you introduce one bug into your system, you get one failing test. And I have built systems that have that property. It's not impossible. It's not even really that hard. But obviously, working in different environments, different languages, different domains can make it a little harder. And if you are working in a, in a language where, for other reasons you wind up composing smaller components into larger components and then testing through the larger components, in addition to the tests that you might write for the smaller mm -hmm. components, but if you're trying to test those interactions, the downside of that will be that you will probably wind up with, if you go to change a component, you might have dozens or hundreds of tests right. failing. If I break my widget, then obviously everything that depends on it essentially is, is fair game for, or rather, if I, if I might do, take my grommet, that's in the widget, then yeah. all the widget tests are likely to fail as well, as are all the things that are further up the chain. Right, right. And some of those things may be valid, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but not all of them will. And and being able to... to This kind of gets back a little bit to what we were talking about with the file system, where if you have those abstractions, you can make a, a clear distinction between what's relevant and what's not, and sort of prevent this spread of 
irrelevant changes from going any farther than it mm-hmm. needs to. It's it's tricky, um, and I think that when you're when you're testing that way, you almost want to. I don't know. I kind of feel like you almost want to aim for a flatter structure, like the ratio of leaves to nodes in your graph is. You want you want more leaves and. You right. know, as opposed to the total number of nodes. I, I suppose this, I just literally now this dawns on me. And that the thought is that in something like a, a C++ application, the higher up the ab, sort of abstraction or even the composition tree you get, the sort of necessarily the fewer the interactions between those larger components that you've built are to the point where you probably will get to a pragmatic point where you're like, well, this is my GPU. Mm-hmm. The interactions with the GPU are turn the screen on, draw triangles. Here's a giant list of triangles. Clear the screen and flip the page buffer. Those are like the top level interactions that I'm going to do. And at that point, I'll gladly take the virtual overhead, whatever it is, because I've only got a dozen different interactions and they're infrequent, both in terms of the the code and also the runtime. Mm -hmm. I don't have to do them very much. So the the classic example I actually, sorry, the reason I went GPU is one of the examples I pull out when I talk about this is how to decide when something should be a uh, a virtual like interface or not, specifically in C plus plus. And the example I give is like a uh, an interaction uh, interface to a, uh, a a texture or a screen. So you can get like how wide are you, how tall are you. You probably don't want to have a plot pixel and get pixel because that's just not that's too tiny a piece of work. It's a single machine instruction usually, or two machine instructions. So you're going to necessarily hamstrung string the compiler if you implement it as a virtual method. So you think, well, okay, what will I do? I'll I'll allow access to maybe locking, uh, getting a pointer to a, a contiguous region of that area, and then I'm on my own. I've got, I can I can monkey with it. I can read and write pixels directly, or I just get a pointer to the whole buffer and whatever. So that's a great sort of like point. The number of interactions you're likely to have. Is uh is is so high you would probably abstract it, but once you get to the yeah flip the page draw a triangle maybe I don't know, that's probably nowadays that you want to draw so many triangles it's not a big deal but um once you get further up the hierarchy that's the point where you say okay I'm going to put a seam in here and I'm going to divorce this part of the code from anywhere else and anything else that wants to interact and test with this part of the code I can always put a fake one of these in here's my fake GPU mm-hmm. here's my fake screen. And then I can say, sure, you can paint all these pixels. Yeah, go, go for it. Do your thing. And then I can look at it afterwards. And there's no, there's no coupling there between the actual implementation and the, and the thing. Whereas the, 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 the GPU itself may be built out of components that are more tightly coupled and are tested more in that way that we, we said before, where it's sort of incrementally and transitively, you kind of like build up this idea that the, 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 the GPU component is okay because transitively all of its components tested okay. And in aggregate, they tested okay. Mm-hmm. So maybe that hybrid approach is the right approach anyway, or the pragmatic approach under these circumstances. Of Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, you know, when I was working at that data visualization company in Houston that I mentioned, I did exactly that with 2D graphics. You know, we built a layer of abstraction on top of the, the graphics library. We were actually doing this in Java at the time, which was a little weird, but it, it would have right. worked. Um, and we built a, a layer of abstraction on top of the, the 2D graphics system for for testing purposes but it also let us do a lot of other like very interesting things. It made it a lot easier when we needed to add functionality like, oh, can you make a screen capture? It's like, well, yeah, I can just turn this graphics object that I have into a buffer, and now you've got your screen capture. Or um, of course. we actually even wound up doing a thing. This was also for testing purposes, although a very different kind of testing, where 
we would test some of our graphics code by rendering it into a buffer and then mm -hmm. running it through a vectorization program and seeing if we approximately got the same vectors out that we put that's, in. And that was, marvelous. yeah, and I mean, it was, it was a little clever. <laughs> a miracle that was. It was, it was a little clever, but it, it sort of told us some interesting things. <laughs> when you about say clever, are you meaning that in the slightly pejorative sense of the word clever? <laughs> Only slightly pejorative. It, it, it was a technique that was interesting that told us some things about our code. Right. I wouldn't recommend it as a general purpose technique for testing graphics. But it was possible, my point here is that it was possible because mm -hmm. of this abstraction that we had created. And so those those kinds of things, I think to, to your point, it's like that is a perfectly valid technique. And I think thinking about where you want to add those sort of those virtualization calls in C++ or, or, or you know, the sort of layers of abstraction in, in whatever language you're working in, it's it's obviously not just testability is the only the only thing that you should be thinking about there. It's sure. it's also, you know, what are they gonna be the uh the other design impacts and the other, you know, performance impacts of doing this. But but I, I really like your point about sort of the higher up you get, the fewer interactions there there really seem to be. I think that's that's quite insightful. From a C plus plus point of view as well, from a build point of view and whatever, the the, the less coupling you have between components, the mm -hmm. or the fewer coupling. <laughs> the less coupling. The less coupling, yeah. the, less I think coupling. the less coupling. But the less coupling you have between between components, it's certainly possible to leverage that to make your builds faster because you can carve the world up into parts that are dependent or not dependent on the interface changing as opposed to some typo in a comment in the the implementation of one of those functions or whatever you're at and that sort of comes back round mm -hmm. to the, the 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 conversation about fast changes to testing so obviously mm -hmm. the big mm -hmm. um problem the elephant in the room uh with C++, well, it's not really an effort because we all know it's there and we can all see it. And it's like the build time. And your sort of worldview mm -hmm. of testing is, and I've seen you do this, you know, you have a watch command running in one window and you've got VI in mm -hmm. another window and you're literally saving. And as you say, your save is a micro commit to you and the watch immediately notices that you save and it runs all the tests. And it's essentially a live dashboard of where you are in your process of developing. And that's super important. And in it, the, the rules of eights, which we talked about last time, if it's 800 milliseconds, that's instant. And you're like, I saved. Yeah, that's cool. Or whoops, no, I made a mistake. Or no, that doesn't work. There's a cool feedback loop there. C++ out of the box tends not to have that. And in my experience, where at least part of my career, I spent writing my own C++ parsers uh, to try and make a whole new way of like even compiling C++ to try and solve this very problem. In my experience, you have to think about that from the get-go in C++. It's not something you graft on at the end. You, a bit like, I say, I guess like tests, right? You know, it's harder to do, come in afterwards and write tests. Right. If you start from the ground up and say, okay, my, my build in the limiting case of having just the, the whatever test library I've picked, you know, I like Catch2, people like Google Test, there's, there's a few of them. That linking with a simple test that just fails or just succeeds, or one of each, just to prove to yourself that you're actually capturing that. Can I even get that building and running in a somewhat interactive amount of time? And then you grow out from there, and you take a deep breath every time you cross some threshold, an eight-second threshold. And again, we're never going to be 800 milliseconds in our world, I don't think. <laughs> right. But, you know, single-digit seconds is fine. And then there are ways and means of, of both breaking up your code and making it compile faster, which we could perhaps talk about at length another time but also making it so that your components 
are split away from each other so that you can run tests on just that component, be it a single file or a single clump of files that are together. And obviously your build process heavily interacts with this so that you can just say, look, I only change this file. I know that loads of my code in theory is affected by this change, but I just want you to build the library and the test for the library and ignore everything else. Because right now I'm in that mode where I want to do that quick loop back and all the other compilers can, can wait until I've proven that I've gotten this right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like there's there's a whole category of things like that where whatever group of people you're working with, you all have to commit. You have to make a shared commitment to doing something a certain way. Otherwise, it's really not going to work out super well for you. One of them is testing. Yep. One of them, I think, is, is a commitment to these sort of fast build times and structuring the codes so that you can build things incrementally, you can build things quickly. Another one of those is deployment, like being able to deploy safely oh, a running system. You 100%. have to decide to do that at the start. It's very difficult to sort of, both from an organizational standpoint and from a technical standpoint, to sort of add that in later, right? Yeah. Continuous so builds, you, continuous deployment, yeah. all these things kind of fit together well. They all go... They, they, they they go together really well if you start them all together, but any mm-hmm. one of them trying to put it in afterwards is a is a is a pain. Yeah, it's much more difficult to do. It's not that it can't be done. It just takes hard work and it takes commitment from everybody involved. If you have half your team that's in, invested in fast builds and the other half is like, eh, it's fine. I like coffee. Um, you know, they're <laughs> they're you're just not going to get to where you want to go. That's that's that is it. I mean, like, there's the whole sword fighting xkcd of you know yeah. what are you doing right which right yeah if you see that as an essential part of your job it's going to be really hard to come along and have someone convince you that you should do a whole bunch of work yeah to take your build time down from you know a minute to eight seconds so that you can you know work in this fashion right because yeah. a you've probably never experienced before so you don't really know what it's like and you don't really know why it's good and B, it's like it's kind of a huge risk. It's sort of like, well, yeah. how do you know this is really going to turn out like That's this? That's a really good point. Certainly, I think there's a certain amount of institutionalization that I've seen with other companies I've worked at with the C++ developers where it is just taken as read that, oh, well, it's mm-hmm. a 20-minute build every time you do anything significant. Nobody touch error.h because if you touch error.h, everyone's cursed. Next time they mm-hmm. get pull to 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 have a 30 minute build so off you go and of yep. course you know projects do get big and so there were there are necessary things that take a while but yes it's yeah. it's a it doesn't have to be that way and I, I remember having the same thing about and we should perhaps even talk about this another time like ides i was I, you know i like ides perhaps more than vi although i use both and i know you're a vi user and and you know you've seen ids and you appreciate them no, and everything no. I like IDEs. I, I it's use just VI is an IDE I was a to huge you. Eclipse fan. <laughs> well, no, that's Emacs. You're thinking of Emacs. Oh, but um, the, the point I want to make is that I remember seeing um, somebody using IntelliJ, as it was at a very previous job, and they mm-hmm. were just like a maestro playing a virtuoso, you know, a virtuoso playing a, an amazing instrument. The mm-hmm. speed that the, the ideas were forming in their head to code appearing on the screen fully formed followed by well maybe i shouldn't rename it that you know call the variable that oh hang on a second this is an interface pull out an interface it was wonderful to watch and it it totally changed the way that i thought about how you could program and it moved me much further down the explorative tap on the keyboard look around maybe this maybe not this versus the you know sagely stroke your beard and think about it approach that we discussed a little bit last time so there's a Mm -hmm. 
there's definitely something there. And I think that obviously as part of that suite of tools, having a fast build, having fast tests, all factor into that that sort of local minima in the space of things that you can do to be productive where you and I currently are, which is, you know, fast turnaround on builds, deploys, tests, all those things. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that's, that, yeah. that's a good spot. Yeah. So, I mean, I think there's a, there's, this is a really deep topic, right? Like we're not going to, we're not going to cover this right. in, un, unfortunately in 45 minutes. And I think the aspects, you know, the style of we're working that we're talking about with fast builds and fast tests the unfortunate truth is is that you you can't really see the full picture i feel like until most of those elements sort of come into play and that makes this this a a a, a complex to topic to talk about but i definitely think maybe on the next episode or any episode after that getting more into the into the yeah. details of you know practically how do you do these things it sounds like you've had you know through your attempts you've had some experience with it but there are also lots of other people that i know do this um and have done it quite extensively. Right. So maybe we could we could mine the the brain trust of the internet to figure out figure Absolutely. this out. Absolutely. But I, I it's a very deep topic. I'm I'm looking forward to awesome. talking about it more. We'll do another one of these. We should. Cool. All right. You've been listening to Two's Compliment, a programming podcast by Ben Rady and Matt Goldfold. Find the show transcript and notes at twoscompliment.org. Contact us on Twitter at two cp. That's at t w o s c p. Inverse space, inversepace.com. Inverse